<coughs> the scripture reading this morning will be, uh, as the uh, overhead shows, Hebrews 5, chapter 5, verses uh, 8 and 9. I will be reading from the uh, New American Standard Version. Again, that's uh, Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. And if I can't get my glasses out, somebody else had to read it for me. They came out, we're okay. Anyway, the scripture goes as follows. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. Well, I'm very happy to be with you today. It's always a privilege for me to be with the Broadway Church of Christ. I, I'm always happy to be involved with you in the singing of these beautiful songs and the prayers. And I'm very grateful for these men who've led us in, in this way in our worship service. Very grateful for the singing which we've had. Thank you, Lynn, and for your participation in that. And I'm very happy that you're with us this morning. If you're visiting, I hope you'll stay and we'll become better acquainted. I hope that we can be. And then we'll be meeting tonight at 6 o'clock, and I encourage you to be with us then. And we'll be doing one of our Sunday night seminars. We've been doing that for several weeks, <clears throat> and we've been looking at world religions. And sometimes they call this comparative religions, that kind of thing, where they're comparing these particular ideological views and We've been looking at different world religions and trying to study them as best we can. And then tonight I want to look at uh, Satanism, and I'll do the best I can on that this evening. I hope you'll be with us at 6 o'clock. To augment that, we've been studying about Christ on Sunday morning. And we've been looking at man-made religions on Sunday night, but we've been looking at the religion that came from heaven on Sunday morning. And the focus of that has always been on Jesus. And I've discussed Jesus as the teacher that has come from God, a statement made by Nicodemus to our Lord in John chapter 3 for several Sundays. And I'd like to bring that to a conclusion today by just making the statement which is made here in Hebrews chapter 5, Jesus the source of our salvation. It is not uh, these false religions that have come along through the years, but the one religion of God from heaven is Christianity, New Testament Christianity. Now I want to spend one more opportunity with you just studying, and I don't know that I'll do it justice at all. I'm sure I will not. Just studying how great Jesus really is. And try to understand as best as my mind can understand the important place that Jesus has as the author and finisher of our faith. That all of us owe him our faith and our life and our obedience, as this passage that we've read this morning teaches. And I want to understand that as best as I possibly can. Then at the conclusion of our study, I will look at one phrase in this passage, our text today, from Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. It's a rather complicated phrase and in turn explain that based on what we've learned. One of the things that I want to talk about is the fact of this great chapter, which I see in 
Hebrews chapter 5. And for those of you who know me, know that I, I love to talk about these great books, and I enjoy studying these great chapters. And this fifth chapter of Hebrews is certainly no exception. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. Think about it just for a moment as we consider the context, and then we'll narrow our discussion down on verses 8 and verse 9. I'm in Hebrews chapter 5, and I'm looking at the fact that Salvation is the result of Jesus Christ, and without Jesus, there would be no salvation. There'd be no hope for eternal life. Hebrews 5 is talking about the high priest. And in the beginning portion of the fifth chapter, he talks about the nature of the high priest's office. See, I find the need to explain these things because so many times we haven't read the chapter. It may be new to us. Or perhaps we don't know anything about a high priest from the Old Testament. And it behooves us to have some kind of background in order for us to really get focused on what the passage is saying. Well, he's talking about Old Testament priests here. And that now Jesus is my high priest. And he talks about the nature of a high priest. That in the Old Testament, as well as in the New, man could not go directly to God. He had to go through a priest and a high priest. And that was his function. The nature of the high priest was to offer worship and sacrifice on behalf of man. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed unto behalf of men in things pertaining to God. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, this was his work in the Old Testament which God gave him to do. And so it is with regard to the appointment of Jesus, which is the second point he makes in Hebrews chapter 5. That Jesus did not solicit or ask for this position, but God appointed him to be our high priest under the New Testament system. And he quotes Old Testament passages here. You are my son today, I have begotten you. Just as it says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek priesthood, you see, has reference to God ordained. God ordained this. This was part of God's divine arrangement. But then in the third part of this chapter, Hebrews chapter 5, is a passage which is talking about the qualifications of our high priest. And it bears careful consideration that Jesus is qualified in a special way, being the Son of God. In the days of his flesh, verse 7, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. He's referring to the resurrection of Christ there. And he was heard because of his prayer, because of the righteousness of Jesus. Why, God heard the prayer and the supplication of the Son. Although he was a son... He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. It's always been one of my favorite verses. And then in the fourth place in the fifth chapter, he talks about responsibilities that we have as Christians. Now, because of our high priest and the qualifications and the fact that he's been appointed by God to be our high priest, we have certain responsibilities in that regard. And he says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. Now, he's talking about 
Christian people that have been Christians for perhaps 30 years or more. He said, I'd like to talk about some other things, but I can't because you're dull of hearing. It's not that they're hard to understand things. It's just that some people just won't listen. And so he says, now you fall into that category, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. I'm in verse 12. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. In other words, the weightier matters of the word of God and the wisdom of God, you can't handle that. You're not prepared for that. Because of your immaturity and your lack of diligence, why in turn you can only have the milk of God's word, the more elementary parts of God's word. In fact, you may need to go back over that again so that you can absorb the food which God has for you, which is a weightier matters of the law. When a person studies mathematics, whether it be algebra or geometry or any of these important studies, it's important to get foundation principles first, and then you build on top of that one. Then once you get that, then you build on top another principle on top of that one, because now you're ready to handle another one. And you don't just jump into heavier matters of algebra or mathematics. It's a building process that you begin to learn principle by principle so that you can handle these other things. Now, if you get behind and you don't get the foundation principles behind you, and you're not really rooted and grounded on that, then you're not going to be able to handle the weightier matters as you go deeper into the subject of algebra and mathematics. Same thing's true with language. If you can't get the foundations down, then of course you're not going to be able to jump into the participle or to look at things such as that, the way the verbs relate and objects relate to the verb. You've got to get the foundation. And that's what he says with regard to those to whom he is writing. He's referring to people, you're still on that elementary level. And you've never really developed into a higher level and responsibility of the same. Four great points that come from Hebrews chapter 5. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do that. But my focus now is Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. And I have set before you a slide, and they'll turn that for me, these particular matters with regard to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8 and 9. One of my favorite passages. And then, as I said, there's a little difficult aspect about that at the end of our lesson today that we'll be able to master once we've learned the following. One of the first things that I want to learn out of this is the fact that Jesus is the Son. And he says so in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, although he was a son. And that really talks about the divine nature of Jesus Christ. You'll notice there's no definite article modifying son here. He does not say he was the son. And sometimes he'll do that. And sometimes Bible writers refer to Jesus as the son of God. But the word the is not in this particular sentence. He was a son. And he's talking about the quality of being a son. In this particular instance, he's saying, although he was a son, the divine nature of God. We read in John chapter 1, particularly in verse 14, about Jesus coming to earth and being the son of God, God in human form. And as you go through the pages of the New Testament, Bible writers are emphasizing the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the son He has this special relationship with God that no one else has. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, John 3, verse 16, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him, verse 17. And one of the ways that they talk about and emphasize for us the fact of Jesus being the Son is through the virgin birth of Christ. And that's one of the first things we learn when we study the book of Matthew and we look at the book of Luke. is the early childhood of Jesus and Jesus being virgin born. How that the angel came to Joseph. Joseph was espoused of Mary. But now Mary's with child. Joseph was of the disposition to put her away privily. But the angel of the Lord came to Joseph and said, Joseph, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. The angel of the Lord was telling Joseph that this was God's divine order of things. Luke emphasizes the matter as well. And in turn, this wonderful, chaste, pure, godly young woman was chosen by God. And Bible writers emphasize the fact, this is the mother of the Son of God. She bears God in the flesh. And I've often thought, maybe this is the greatest miracle. I don't know. And perhaps I'm out of line when I actually suggest the idea that one miracle is greater than another. Maybe so. Maybe I'm out of line on that. But it just seems to me, as great as it is for him to feed 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes, or to walk on the water, or turn the water into wine, as great as that is, and as miraculous as that was, Still, God puts himself into the womb of woman and in so doing subjects himself to his own law and lives it perfectly. What a miracle. And Bible writers emphasize the virgin birth of Christ. He was a son. He proves himself to be the son of God by the miracles which he performs. Since I'm on that point, let me talk a little bit about it. You have in John chapter 20 a very interesting passage there. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples give. But these are written that you might believe. And that believing you might have life through his name. Verse 30 and verse 31. The chapters, John chapter 20. Now John picked out seven great miracles of Christ, and he used those seven miracles. And if we were studying John, we'd look at those miracles. For example, John chapter 11, raising Lazarus from the dead. What a miracle. Jesus said to him, where have you laid him? He said, roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. But I tell you what. I think if Jesus had gone to that cemetery there, and if he had just said, come forth, every dead person in that cemetery had been raised from the dead. But he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he raised his friend, Lazarus, from the dead. What a great miracle that was. It, the blind, John chapter 8, causing this blind man to see again. The miracles prove that Jesus is the Son of God. 
Well, when you talk about Jesus being the Son of God, the very fact that God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. In fact, he does that twice. He does that when Jesus is baptized, Matthew chapter 3, also on the mountain of transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. The very same terminology is used on both occasions, Matthew 3 and Matthew 17. Jesus goes from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of John. As he's baptized in the Jordan River, there the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. And a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved who? Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Matthew chapter 17, the very same words are used there in the transfiguration of Christ. A different point altogether and a different time in the life of Jesus. He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. The hear ye Him is now added to Matthew chapter 17. It's a further statement emphasizing the fact that there was a time when men should have listened to Moses and should have listened to Elijah who were there on the mountain of transfiguration with the Lord. But now's the time to listen to Christ Hear ye him. It reminds us of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Proving Jesus to be the Son of God. God testified he was his Son himself. But one of the great things that these Bible writers do to help us understand the fact that Jesus is the Son of God is the resurrection from the dead. Matthew chapter 16. There Jesus is telling the disciples... He's got to go to Jerusalem, and he's got to suffer many things by the hands of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they didn't like that, and Peter didn't like that. And Peter is rebuked by the Lord. He says, get behind me, Satan. Peter says, no, don't let this be so. Don't let it be so. And Jesus is trying to tell him, this is part of God's divine plan, where the Son of Man, the Son, would suffer and die on the cross and be raised from the dead by the power of God. Paul emphasizes this great passage and thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we have an entire chapter devoted to the matter of the resurrection of the dead. And it's not just his resurrection, but it's our resurrection as well. But here he says in our passage, in our study today in Hebrews chapter 5, 8, and 9, that Jesus came in the flesh. It would be one thing just to say, well, he's the Son of God. But it's quite another thing to say, the Son of God has come in the flesh. And again, I'll recite for you John chapter 1 and verse 14, where it talks about the coming of the Son of God. He became flesh and, John says, dwelt among us. John writes about it in 1 John chapter 1. That which we have seen, which we've heard with our ears, we've handled with our hands, while we testify of this to you, he came and he was here and we were with him and he was in the flesh and we lived with him day by day and we wrote down by inspiration the things that he taught us. Now you would think that the Son of God, God in the flesh, who came to earth, would be exempt from the things that you and I would have to face. You would think that God would be exempt from suffering and heartache and hunger and being thirsty. That he would be exempt from rejection and ridicule. That he's God in the flesh. He wouldn't have to go through that because he's God. But Bible writers make it very clear. There was no exception for him. 
that he faced all these particular matters and that he learned from it. And sometimes that bothers us because we don't understand it. Though he was a son, he learned. Now you would think being omniscient, he'd already know everything. Omniscient, which is a word which means knowing all that can be known. That he's God and he knows all that can be known. And we studied a little bit about this last time, and let me make a further point and elaboration about it this time. In the eternal form of God, yes, he knew all and knows all that can be known. But as Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, when he became a man, he emptied himself but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I read for you Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. You can read these verses from the pages of your own Bible. There are pages that are... are Profound pages, and we struggle at trying to understand all of this meaning of emptying himself, but naturally it conveys the idea that God limited himself in some form by becoming man. And in order to be man, he had to limit himself in some form. And some people have struggled with this particular idea because they think, well, he already knew everything. How could he learn? You see, I'm trying to understand Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Yet he learned things. Well, wouldn't God be exempt from having to learn things? Well, he emptied himself, Philippians 2, 7 and 8, and took upon himself the form of a servant. He became a man, a human being, just like you and I are, human beings. Luke tells us about this particular matter. In Luke chapter 2, when it describes these things about Jesus, verse 40, the childhood scenes of Jesus are rare. There's not a lot written about them. But these things are written for our understanding. Luke 2 and verse 40. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. He emptied himself as God in eternity, with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, he knew all, knew all that could be known. That's the word omniscient. But he emptied himself, a type of self-imposed limitation, so that he could become a human being. Notice in verse 52, I'm in Luke chapter 2. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Again, a passage you can read from the pages of your own Bible. It's a verse which describes the continued growth and the maturation of Jesus. In other words, he was obedient. Now this does not in any way imply there was a time when he was disobedient. The passage under consideration for the present is to say that he grew and matured and was obedient. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. 
And I'm trying to understand that, what that means in the life of Christ. Him being in the flesh necessarily means that he continued to grow to greater levels of understanding. It was never a point where he was disobedient. He was always obedient. But he continued to grow and mature into greater levels of understanding and wisdom and in favor with God and in favor with man. Luke chapter 2. Now what you and I have to do, we have to learn by our mistakes. We make mistakes and we learn by them. And we're better people because of them. It's a sad thing when a person won't learn from his mistakes and he or she keeps making the same mistakes over and over again. That is sad. For we should learn by our mistakes. But Jesus didn't have to learn by his mistakes. He was never mistaken and he was never disobedient. He continued to grow in greater levels of obedience and knowledge and understanding while in the flesh as a human being. I remember when I first started playing chess. I didn't know anything about the game. I was teaching in high school, teaching social studies in high school and history in high school and another history social teacher. I really admired him. He was a gospel preacher too. And so we paired up and after every day of classes, we'd get together and we'd start playing chess. And he was showing me how to play chess. And it was clear I wasn't ever winning. I was always losing. And his point was you have to lose in order to learn how to win. I'm trying to learn. So my daughter, my son come along. My daughter didn't care for it. My son did. I started teaching him chess. And we continued to play chess until he started winning. And then we quit playing chess. <laughs> the point is you have to learn by your mistakes. I never have been a very good chess player. But I know one thing, you have to play the game, and you're going to lose the game, but that helps you learn how to win. That's how I learn. I'm a human being. I'm a mere human being, and that's the way we're going to learn. But that was not the way it was with Jesus in the flesh. He never made any mistakes. He learned obedience, continued obedience, greater levels of service, greater levels of wisdom and understanding while he was in the flesh. And the passage also tells us something else about what he learned. What did Jesus learn? He learned about suffering. And it tells us in verse 8, Though he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Verse 8. You would think again the Son of God and God himself would be exempt from the suffering. But that's not so. You remember Job... When I think of suffering, I think of Job. I think it's the greatest piece of epic poetry I've ever read. The book of Job. And it is a book which talks about the suffering of an innocent man. And he has these three friends that come to him and said, basically their argument is, Job, you're a sinner and that's why you're suffering. And a lot of people have that mistaken notion. You're a sinner, therefore you're suffering. I think that way about myself every time I get the flu. Why, what did I do to deserve this? Well, you didn't do anything to deserve it. Sometimes suffering comes our way. 
A lot of times suffering is the result of what other people do and not what we do. But yet we suffer. And so the friends of Job were wrong in that as God explains to them forcefully in the latter portion of the book of Job. Sometimes the innocent suffer due to no fault of their own as it was in the case of Job. Jesus learned by suffering. Why? Jesus learned by suffering because rebellious people would reject him. He would say in John chapter 8, in fact it would be a good passage just to turn to, you are of your father the devil. Rebellious people rejecting him. I'm thinking about verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. They are rebellious. They will not listen to the word of God. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 44, Jesus suffered because of the sins of other people. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered because other people were rebellious and wouldn't listen and rejected him. If I might add this point rather quickly. He suffered as a fulfillment of prophecy. And one of the great Old Testament passages of all time would have to be Isaiah 53 and the discussion. Though I'll not take the time to study this great, wonderful book of Isaiah. It is a book which talks about the suffering of the Son of Man, the Son of God. He learned suffering. He knows what it's all about. You and I know something to the degree of suffering, but we don't know it like Jesus learned it. And he suffered for another reason that I don't want to forget. It's the only way sin could be atoned for. Let me spend just a brief moment talking about that. Now that reminds me of Hebrews chapter 2, and I'm thinking of verse 14 and verse 15, Passages that I'm sure that you'll want to make note of and study them when you can. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Hebrews 2.14, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Verse 15, he died for man's sins, the only way it could be paid for, through the death of the Son who came in the flesh. Well, there's a lot more that I'd like to say about that particular matter, but I think I want to talk about this point that the Bible writer references, him being the author or him being the source. And what I may do in this instance is combine these two points. Not only is he the author of salvation, but he's the exclusive author or the exclusive source of salvation. Notice how he says it in our text today, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. 
a point you and I now understand something about. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, latter portion of verse 9. The source or the author, your translation, may render on that particular matter. And as I said, he is the exclusive source. He's the exclusive author. He's the author of the salvation. If it were not for Jesus, we wouldn't have forgiveness of sin. It's the only way that sin can be atoned for. That's why Jesus would say to the apostles in John chapter 14, I am the only way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. John chapter 14 and verse 6. Now that's a very exclusive thing to say. Nobody is going to have access to God except through me, the Son of God. When you and I study these world religions, we ought to never forget that fact. That the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. If it were not for him, no one would have hope for obtaining eternal life. If you don't mind, let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Another one of my favorite verses as it comes to my mind. And I'm thinking about verse 1 and verse 2 of Hebrews 12. And in this particular passage, he's calling to our mind the fact that these people who've gone before us, all those mentioned in chapter 11, are those who are witnesses. They are ones who testify with regard to the need for obedient faith. But really what caused my mind to think of Hebrews 12 is verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Isn't that a great verse? And you ought to mark it in your Bible. The passage is Hebrews chapter 12. And the verse is verse 2, because he's saying, fix your eyes on Christ, focus on him, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It's not that he enjoyed dying on the cross, but the result of the cross would be the salvation of us. We would enjoy the salvation, the benefits of the cross, and there's great joy in that particular matter, knowing that Jesus died for our sins And now he, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the author. He's the source. He's the exclusive source. There's no salvation outside of him. And that's this Bible writer's point. And I don't want to ever forget that. And now I think I'm ready for this difficult part of the passage. Jesus made perfect. Wasn't he perfect already? Wasn't he the one that's already perfect? Did he have to become perfect? I'm in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and verse 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Perhaps we should focus on that point just for a brief second. The word obedience there. The tense of the verb is a present tense verb. And that present tense verb means keeps on and on and on. In this instance, he's saying this one keeps on obeying and keeps obeying 
and keeps obeying and keeps obeying. It's not like the sectarian view of Christianity. The denominational view of Christianity is you can do a one-time thing, and then that's it, and you're saved. And you never can lose it. The sectarian view of Christianity is that all you have to say is, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, or let Jesus into your heart, or whatever kind of formula they have invented, and in turn, it's a matter of you're saved, and you can never lose that salvation. But the truth of the matter is the salvation is reserved for those who keep on obeying and keep on obeying and keep on obeying. And it's very clear that if we're not careful, we can lose that salvation. Although he was a son, he learned obedience, continual obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who what? Obey him. The source of eternal salvation. Those who keep on obeying and keep on obeying. And sustained obedience is inherent in a proper understanding of the passage. And now to the matter of Jesus being perfect. And that certainly is what he is. It is not to imply that in any way he was somehow less than perfect. And now he's been made perfect. Before, he wasn't quite perfect or quite good enough, but now he is good enough to be the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. As some of the translations might suggest, and as they might imply. But that is not the meaning of the term by our particular point in time of study. And having been made perfect, he is completely qualified. And that's what totelion means here, the Greek word for this word perfect. Sometimes you'll see it, for example, Paul used it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Then that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Totelion, totelios. This particular word means now complete. Everything is ready. Everything has been done. In order for Jesus and for man to be saved from sin. Now all that needs to be done is for you and me to obey it. God's done everything that needs to be done. And Jesus is perfect. Not that he was somehow less than perfect before, but he is completely qualified to be our Savior, the author of eternal salvation. And when I look at that in light of world religions that have the most far-fetched, abstract, nebulous type of ideas with regard to what people ought to do or ought not to do. And if you've been studying with me on Sunday nights, you've been seeing some of that. And quite frankly, tonight, we'll look at one of the most far-fetched ideas you can imagine. And I'm so thankful. Jesus is the perfect qualified one to save me from my sins. What needs to be done now is I need to repent of those sins and confess my faith in Christ and do as Jesus told me to do, to be baptized into Christ for the remission of my sins. For he is the author and finisher of my faith, Hebrews 12 and verse 2. And there's no salvation outside Jesus Christ. I started this morning by telling you I just am not qualified. I can't. I just can't express it in words sufficiently so for us to fully grasp how great 
Jesus is. How important He is to be for our lives. How essential it is for me to trust Him in faith and obey Him in faith. That when Jesus tells me to do something, I must do it. I must repent of my sins. Luke 13, 3. I tell you, nay, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. When Jesus tells me to do that, I must do it. It's essential for me to understand when Jesus says, He that confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. But he that denieth me before men, him will I also deny before my heavenly Father. That's Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And it's essential for me. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. To do that because Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, the source of my salvation, told me to do it. And I urge you to do it today. And enjoy the benefits of the death of Christ. And prepare yourself for that great day of judgment. Whereby we all will stand before God Almighty, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, and give an account for what we've done in this earthly walk of life. Are you prepared for that? You've never been baptized into Christ. I mean immersed in water as the New Testament teaches, and as that verb there, baptism, baptizomai, bapto, imply and teach, then do it now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.